This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. When did we realize that we had a problem with greenhouse gases? And then where are we, where are we today? In the 1980s, scientists really began to be able to tackle this problem. What we now know is that the fossil fuel industry had known about this in that same time period, in the 1980s. What they didn't do was tell the rest of us. They engaged in a massive project of disinformation across the industry. And so we've wasted 30 years in this completely pointless debate about whether or not climate change was, quote, real, unquote, a debate that both sides knew the answer to at the beginning. It's just one of them was willing to lie. We've seen big shifts in how water moves around the planet so that because warm air holds more water vapor than cold. And as a result, uh, we see big increases in drought in dry areas and with it these massive and wicked wildfires. And then we see big increases in precipitation, downpour, flood in wet areas. And all those things are combining already to produce big human costs, including the early stages of what most people predict will be the by far the biggest migrations in human history as people flee places. And I don't need to tell you what the national security, international security implications of that many people on the move will be. Our attention has been transfixed a little by the pandemic so that we, we, we're we not paying perhaps as much attention, but, you know, we're having worldwide outbreaks of locusts at the moment, triggered by changes in weather patterns, and that are chewing up a huge amount of the world's food resources. Those sort of things are, are I'm afraid, very much what the future looks like. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Bill McKibben is an educator, environmentalist, and author. He is a distinguished scholar in environmental studies at Middlebury College. The Boston Globe has called him America's most important environmentalist. He is the author of well over a dozen books, including a 2019 book called Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? I just sat down with Bill to talk about the book, in particular, the risks posed by climate change. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Bill, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is very good to have you on the show. It's a real pleasure to be with you. You know, I wanted to have you on since I read your most recent book over the holiday season in December, but unfortunately COVID and some other things got in the way. So I'm so glad we were able to make this work. I want to tell our folks that the book published last year is titled Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? And I want my listeners to know that you know, a podcast on national security, what, what's a podcast on national security talking about this book for? And it's my view that national security is about both threats to our nation and about threats to our people. And that's what I thought about as I turned every page of your book as I read it. So that's why I wanted to have you on. You discuss two important issues in your book. One is climate change. The other is is technology. I want to primarily focus on climate change, but I do want to ask you some questions about technology as well. So let me let me start, Bill, by asking what led you to write the book? Well, you know, I've written the first book about climate change, a book called The End of Nature back in, believe it or not, 1989. So I've followed this, um, this most absorbing of topics for a very long time, really since it became a public topic. And I, I felt like we needed to get a sense of where we stood three decades later. And and of course, the news is mostly bad. I mean, what were, what were warnings in the late 1980s about what would happen if we didn't take this seriously have by now become bulletins from the front line in a planet that's increasingly under siege from changes in the climate. And, and I mean, as you were reading it over the holiday season, which seems a very long time ago, uh, it's hard to remember now, but 2020 began with the spectacle of the continent of Australia half burning to the ground, you know. Um, we're, we're far along in this story now. So what's the, Bill, what's the overall theme of the book? Well, I suppose if there's a theme, it's to let people understand both where we find ourselves, which is in a very difficult place, past the point where we can stop global warming, at the point where maybe we can still stop it short of cutting our civilizations off at the knees, but only if we move very quickly. That was one point, but the other was to try and help people understand how we got to this point. Uh, and I think that there's a deep connection with the, well, with the move towards societies uh, that that worshipped markets, uh, that devalued collective action and government action, 
um, uh, that kind of um, worldview that began in the Reagan era and the Thatcher era, uh, the one that said that markets solve all problems. Uh, I mean, look, this has not been this has not been a good year for that idea. Uh, what did the pandemic teach us, uh, along with climate change? It's that there are problems that can only be solved when we act together. Uh, Ronald Reagan used to his great laugh line in all his speeches was the nine scariest words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help, you know, ha ha ha. But uh, really the scariest words in the English language turn out to be, we've run out of ventilators. The hillside behind your house is on fire. Yeah. So Bill, you, you write in the book about something that you call leverage. What is that? And why is that important? Um, we live at a moment when every mistake gets magnified. So, I mean, look, it was completely possible for human beings to screw up in all kinds of ways at other points in our history, but our numbers were smaller and our technology less all-encompassing. So, you know, it didn't matter in quite the same way. There was nothing that the Holy Roman Emperor could do that could change the pH of the oceans, that could alter the temperature of the uh, atmosphere, that could melt the, the ice caps. We have, between our numbers and our technological reach, the ability now to make changes that are on an uh, unbelievable scale. And, that, and, and too much of that leverage also exists in too few hands. I mean, we know I'm afraid in in our country that too many decisions get made by a tiny coterie of people who control an enormous amount of our wealth and hence our political power. So in every way, we're at a period of over leverage, it seems to me. And and really, we need to figure out how to back off some, uh, which is um, a hard thing for humans to do, but not an impossible one, you know. We actually have some emerging technologies that are different than the ones that we're used to. The engineers have dropped the price of a solar panel or a wind turbine 90% in the last decade. And that's really good because if we wanted to, we could move fast to deploy them and they produce a lot less carbon than burning oil and gas. But they also, in another way, lower leverage too. I mean, Look, you think a lot about national security, so you know how much unearned power and concentrated in the hands of people who just happen to control the small deposits of hydrocarbons on which we depend. I mean, that's why we pay attention to the Koch brothers. They're our biggest political players and also our biggest oil and gas barons. That's why we pay attention to the king of Saudi Arabia. It's not like he's thought up some interesting new uh, you know, idea about governance. They cut people's heads off with a sword, you know. Uh, but as long as they control this thing on which we depend, they have outsized power. But everybody has some sun and some wind. And moving in those directions will help rebalance us in lots of ways. So, Bill, I want to dig down, if it's okay, a little bit into climate change. And I guess I want to start by asking you, when did we realize that we had a problem with greenhouse gases, and then where are we? Where are we today, and how did we get here from that moment of discovering that we had a problem? 
good question, and it lets us talk about all kinds of interesting history. Um, you know, humans began changing the atmospheric concentration, atmospheric chemistry, about 300 years ago when we started burning coal on a large scale. And that's just been increasing ever since. It was in the late 19th century that the first person to alert us that really this might in in real time cause real trouble, the great Swedish chemist Svante Arrhenius, uh, who won the Nobel for other work, managed to predict with with remarkable accuracy, since he didn't have computers to work with, about how much the temperature would increase. Uh, uh, and and nobody paid that much attention to it for most of the 20th century because we didn't have computing power large enough to really work out where the danger lines lay. But in the 1980s, scientists really began to be able to tackle this problem. And it was in those years that we started to get the first uh, first announcements. The most important moment came in 1988 when NASA scientist Jim Hansen testified before Congress that climate change was real and dangerous and underway. Now, what we now know, thanks to great investigative reporting by many of your peers at the LA Times, Columbia Journalism School, uh, elsewhere, what we now know is that the fossil fuel industry had known about this in that same time period, in the 1980s. They had good scientists uh, and their product was carbon, so they were studying it and coming up with the same conclusions. We know, for instance, that Exxon scientists predicted with stunning accuracy what the temperature and the CO2 concentration would be in 2020. Um, What they didn't do was tell the rest of us. They engaged in well, in a massive project of disinformation across the industry, spending billions of dollars in order to uh, cloud the picture. And so we've wasted 30 years in this completely pointless debate about whether or not climate change was, quote, real, unquote, a debate that both sides knew the answer to at the beginning. It's just one of them was willing to lie. And that lie turns out to be, you know, probably the most consequential lie in human history because we won't get those 30 years back. So where we stand now is that the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide, which before the Industrial Revolution was about 275 parts per million, is now well north of 415 parts per million. Uh, In fact, in last month, it hit a new record, just about 418 parts per million. Uh, That doesn't sound like an enormous change. We're measuring it in parts per million. But it means that the temperature of the Earth has already gone up about 1 degree Celsius, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Again, that doesn't sound so enormous. I mean, you know, if it was 60 degrees when you walked into your office and 62 when you walked out, you wouldn't notice that much difference. But that extra heat is enough to have put huge changes in motion. It's the heat equivalent of exploding a a Hiroshima-sized bomb every couple of seconds on this planet. And it's been enough heat to, for instance, melt about half the sea ice in the summer Arctic. That extra carbon has uh, dramatically changed the pH of the oceans. We've seen big shifts in how water moves around the planet. So that because warm air holds more water vapor than cold. 
And as a result, uh, we see big increases in drought in dry areas and with it, these massive and wicked wildfires. And then we see big increases in precipitation, downpour, flood in wet areas. Um, um, and all those things are combining already to produce big human costs, including the early stages of what most people predict will be the by far the biggest migrations in human history as people flee places that have simply become too hot or too salty or too flooded or too dry to allow them to go on living there. And I don't need to tell you what the national security, international security implications of that many people on the move will be. So, Bill, if we don't change course, if we don't change current set of policies and current set of activities that we conduct as human beings, then where are we headed? How bad will this get? How dangerous will it get? Is it an existential threat to us as humans? I mean, the short answer is yes, it is. And it's headed, I mean, it's not that difficult to kind of track where it's headed because it's almost a problem in math. Um, you know, at, at current rates of production of CO2, burning coal and oil and gas, the earth passes fairly rapidly in the course of this century through a place where the temperature increases two degrees Celsius. That's the target, the, the kind of red line that the uh, world's governments tried to draw in Paris in 2015. We're on a trajectory now for a temperature increase someplace between three and four degrees Celsius. And if we do that, I, I, I think the best estimate is that our odds of having civilizations, anything like the ones that we know, are very slim, just too much disruption, too much chaos. Uh, already we can see, you know, uh, places around the world where it's getting too hot for people to easily inhabit. Uh, we've seen record temperatures, the highest reliably recorded temperatures ever on the planet in the last couple of years with cities in the Middle East uh, registering temperatures near 130 Fahrenheit and you know heat indexes as high as 160, 165 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, these are at the absolute limit of the human body's ability to cope. But the science is pretty clear that on current trajectories, that's what it's going to be like for days, weeks, even months across really large swaths of the planet, much of the Asian subcontinent, much of the North China Plain, much of the Middle East. These are places where billions of people live. What what has to change, Bill, for us to get on a trajectory to fix this problem? I mean, how big are the changes that we have to make? I mean, the good thing about math problems is, you know, you can you can kind of make them work. I mean, what has to change is we have to stop burning coal and gas and oil, and we have to do it very quickly. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change set up by the UN, uh, which is our main scientific body in these matters, issued a report in October 2018. It said that unless we had fundamentally transformed our energy systems by the year 2030, that our chances of meeting the targets set in Paris were essentially nil. Uh, 
And they defined that fundamental transformation as cutting in half our emissions. So that's a huge job, really hard work. Uh, it's especially hard work because we have to squeeze it into 10 years uh, instead of the 40 that we would have had if the fossil fuel industry hadn't wasted our time with its um, disinformation campaigns. But that is not necessarily an impossible task. Um, the dramatic decrease in the price of solar and wind power has changed the game in a lot of ways. And there are really important experts, people like Mark Jacobson at Stanford, who have published powerful guides as to how every state and almost every country on earth could meet those targets by 2030, 2035 uh, at prices that are not only affordable, that are a huge bargain when you compare them with trying to pay for the damage that comes from uh, climate change. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Bill McKibben. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Bill, so, so, so how much of what you just talked about, I think this is probably a short question, how much of what you just talked about is accepted science and how much of it is in dispute within the scientific community? There's really no dispute within the scientific community about the basic trajectory of where we're going. And there really hasn't been for a long time. The science on climate change was essentially became a matter of consensus by the mid-1990s. I mean, there's immense amounts of work to be done about all the different detailed parts of it, because it's an experiment that we've never carried out before on this planet. Or in fact, it has nature's kind of carried it out a few times over the course of earth history. Uh, every, you know, there are four or five of these great mass extinction events that have been triggered by changes in the chemistry of the atmosphere, but we weren't around to observe them. So we don't know exactly how it plays out. But the, the basic science of climate change is absolutely settled. And where where does climate denial come from then? Is it is it the economics of it? <laughs> climate denial comes from the fact that one of the in, richest industries on earth, uh, you know, would have to surrender its business model uh, if we took climate change seriously. I mean, there's no there's no mystery about where it comes from. Uh, uh, it, it came from the really careful, calculated efforts of the fossil fuel industry to make sure that we didn't act. And as I say, we've now had great investigative reporting making that clear in every way. And, I, you know, the good news is that finally, after 30 years, that climate denial is wearing off. I mean, obviously, it still affects, infects people like Donald Trump, but it's hard to imagine that even among his supporters, there's many people who take him seriously as a uh, source of scientific information. Um, for the rest of the world, even for the oil companies now at this point, uh, they have no choice but to admit that, that reality, in fact, is real. 
And now they're just engaged in a kind of uh, ongoing effort to delay and postpone the inevitable. So, Bill, I want to read a few quotes from your book that I found really powerful, and I just want to get you to react to them. Um, So the first one is, we've used more energy and resources during the last 35 years than in all of human history. This is this just what I was sort of trying to say about leverage before and about the kind of momentum of our situation. Uh, you know, I, I wrote the first book about climate change in 1989. Human beings have emitted more CO2 since that book came out than in all of human history before it. Uh, we've been powering pell-mell ahead, even in the face of the stiffest warnings from the scientific community. The second one, which you've talked a little bit about already, is the rapid degradation of the planet's physical systems that was still theoretical when I wrote The End of Nature is now underway. Yeah. uh, And of course, it's just painful to look around every day and see the examples of it. I mean, this last, it's appearing that 2020 will be either the first or second hottest year on record, which is really astonishing because there's no El Nino underway, that change in the Pacific uh, Ocean temperature that usually is required to have a record temperature year. But now things have just gotten so hot that we look, say, at Siberia, where temperatures through the whole spring and early summer have been 20, 30 degrees Fahrenheit above what they should be. The temperature was above 100 degrees north of the Arctic Circle last month. Um, And now there's enormous wildfires as the inevitable result of that kind of heat and the dryness that comes with it. Uh, uh, You know, something like this is going on around the world every day. Our attention has been transfixed a little by the pandemic uh, so that we, we, we're we not paying perhaps as much attention, but, you know, we're having worldwide outbreaks of locusts at the moment triggered by changes in weather patterns and that are chewing up a huge amount of the world's food resources. Uh, those sort of things are, are, I'm afraid, very much what the future looks like. So the the third quote, which you've already touched on a little bit, as well, is the habitable planet has literally begun to shrink, a novel development that will be the great story of our century. Yeah, look around. I mean, um, we're already seeing one of the effects of the rise in sea level, which is that people are beginning to abandon coastal areas, uh, retreat away from the shore because as sea level rises and as storms get more ferocious, that land is becoming less and less and less defensible. Uh, that'll accelerate as as the decades wear on. And it's very hard to imagine scenarios where we at this point manage to make it possible for cities like Miami to, to sustain themselves in anything like their current form. And of course, that's true all over the world in spades because many places around the world where the sea is rising uh, have no uh, no resources to build walls and seawalls and things on the necessary scale. We also see people having to leave places because drought and desertification have just made it impossible to 
raise crops or to uh, pasture animals. And so they're on the move uh, and already on the move in fairly large numbers. Those numbers will just keep growing. The UN estimate for climate refugees in the course of this century is as high as a billion people. And then the next one, the next one really caught my attention, got to me actually. We are far more rapidly than ever before in Earth's history, filling the atmosphere with the precise mix of gases that triggered the five great mass extinctions. In the past, we've had these uh, mass extinctions because we've had episodes of extraordinary volcanism. Uh, the, you know, a thousand years of, uh, or more millennia of, of, of huge uh, of volcanic activity across vast areas, in Siberia in one case, uh, India in another. Um, what's amazing is that it turns out that, you know, you can do the work of thousands of volcanoes uh, with a fleet of, you know, cars with V8 engines. A uh, fleet of power plants. We've dug up and burned so much coal and gas and oil in the last couple of centuries that we've become a kind of out of control volcano ourselves. And CO two levels in the atmosphere are rising faster than we've ever are ever able to see them rise anywhere in the historical record. And then the last quote, Bill, is the particular politics of one country for one fifty year period will have rewritten the geological history of the earth. Yes, this is the, this is the thing that makes it so hard. Uh, America's decision uh, in, say, the Reagan years that we were going to go to this kind of laissez-faire, uh, deregulated uh, approach to government um, allowed, uh, allowed us to back away from taking action on climate change and we have encouraged, you know, through a series of international mechanisms like the WTO, most of the other countries in the world to take more or less the same uh, approach to things. And so in this most crucial of periods, when we were finding out about climate change and when the temperature was beginning to shift, was precisely the moment when we'd rendered ourselves least able to deal with it. We kind of unequipped ourselves. So just one more question on on climate change, Bill. And I don't know exactly how to ask it, but when will it be too late? When when will you know inaction lead to a cascading set of consequences that it doesn't matter what we do at that point? Is is there such a time? I think the way to think about it most usefully is to take this concept we've already discussed, leverage, and kind of turn it around. There's been a lot of negative leverage that's gotten us in the situation where we are. I think the science really indicates that the next 10 years is our period of maximum leverage to get things right, that the changes we make then will have some uh, will we'll play out, you know, if we're able to move very, very quickly to renewable energy over that period, that will begin to slow and blunt the rise in temperature. And if that happens, then we can avert some of the worst. Not all of it. We're past the point where stopping climate change is on the menu. But if we don't do that, 
then as you point out, we begin to, we're already beginning to move past a series of tipping points that are irreversible. Nobody has a plan for freezing the Arctic now that it's melted, you know. So uh, 2030 is an important and almost literal deadline. And you know enough about politics and government to know that if you want something to happen in 2030, you better start in on it now. Uh, I'm with those people who say that the election of 2020 in this country is probably going to be the most important one we ever had. And one of the reasons is, maybe the preeminent reason is, if we don't get it right very fast, our chances of getting it right slip by forever. Bill, let's let's switch gears and talk about technology. Walk us through your concerns. I'm interested, as you can tell in these questions of kind of leverage and scale. And I have a feeling that we're now seeing the emergence of new trends that are sort of where climate change was 30 years ago. That is visible as a threat, but we're not doing anything about it. And I hope we will examine it and think about it more closely this time before it gets out of control. I'm talking about uh, advanced artificial intelligence, uh, the rise of human genetic engineering, these other technologies that I think are on a scale that makes it very difficult to imagine a kind of human future. And much of the book is about this question of what it means to be human. And a particular technology that concerns you? Well, I, as I write in the book a good deal, uh, I think that the prospect of human genetic engineering, of uh, manipulating uh, fetuses in embryo to produce some set of desired characteristics is a really dangerous uh, step to be taking and an unnecessary one since we don't need to do it to deal with disease or or defect. We do it, we would do it if we did in an effort to improve and enhance children. And I, I, I think that's a big mistake. I think humans as we know them are fairly remarkable creatures and that we have all the gifts that we need if we were to employ them to build a kind of working world. And that's what we should be paying our attention to. So it's easy, um, or it's not easy, but, but, but it's, it's easy to comprehend how bad the situation could be if we don't get climate under control. How, how bad could the situation get with the concept of, of genetic engineering? I don't, I don't think we know. Um, but I think that the things like human genetic engineering and artificial intelligence threaten not apocalypse in the same way that climate change does, but threaten us with the future in which humans are humans, if that's important to you, uh, uh, lose much of our meaning and purchase on the planet. It's still a philosophical discussion in a sense, because these technologies aren't quite ripe. But as the book points out, these are, you know, if the oil barons were determined to hang on to one view of the future, this is another view that the barons of Silicon Valley are determined to hang on to. And they have an enormous amount of leverage and power in our political system. So the rest of us better take seriously the prospect of what's coming. So Bill, when I finished the book, I had two very different and seemingly contradictory ideas in my head. One was that we're doomed, and the other is that there's real hope. 
Can you react to that? The last quarter of the book is about the ways that we fight back. Uh, I've spent my last couple of decades uh, really as a volunteer organizer, mostly in the climate fight. And we've tried our best to stand up against the oil industry and weaken its political power so we can make rational change. And I got to say, there are signs that that finally is working. Just in the last few weeks, we've seen uh, plans abandoned for some of the massive pipeline projects that we've been fighting. The fossil fuel divestment effort that's now reached $14 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that announced they don't want anything to do with hydrocarbons. That's become a huge weapon in the fight against the power of these companies. And it's all because of people's mobilization. When people mobilize and fight, then we have a chance, even against the enormous odds that our unequal society has produced for us. And so I hope we keep doing much, much more of that, Michael. The book is Falter. Has the human game begun to play itself out? The author is Bill McKibben. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Bill McKibben. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.